welcome to the Clemson Dubcat. Make that Clemson debacle cast for today anyway. Hard to form words about what we saw unfold last night in Durham, North Carolina. But we're going to talk to Matt Bockhorst to try to help make some sense of it. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning, way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold based in Greenville. They are Clemson people, and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse, and neglect car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation at Parm Smith and Archenhold, call 864-990-4500. Or online at paramlaw.com. That's P A R H A M law.com. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experience team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting, like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Okay, was texting earlier this morning with Matt Bockhorst about maybe doing a podcast interview later this week. He said, how about today? So here we go, right out of the gates to talk about the mess last night against Duke. All right, joined by Matt Bockhorst. How you doing, sir? Well, you know, I think like uh, most of the Clemson faithful, I'm not not as great as I would have hoped, but uh, it um, that was a great holiday weekend and um, obviously disappointing outcome with the game Monday night, but all is well. The sun comes up tomorrow. It's uh, we're recording this at about twelve thirty thirty the day after, and. Um, I guess it's good to just rip the damn Band-Aid off and talk about it now. Um, Boy, oh boy, what really really sticks with me is just the, and what I'm trying to answer on the the part of questions from subscribers and fans and others who have been reading my work for the last (laughs) six months and have been hearing about, oh man, I heard about how different things were, are under Garrett Riley and um, how good we were going to be on defense and, and how different the offense was going to look. And Larry, how do you explain much more of the same? Um, and you uh, just to just to sort of add to that, I mean, you were in the same boat as, as most everybody else within the program in just a decided feeling of optimism of rebirth refreshment that came with the new offense how do you square what we saw last night with what we were picking up going into the season 
Yeah, I mean, I think that everybody, including myself and those around the program, I think uh, the performance of Monday night was definitely surprising. I think beyond talent and scheme and all of that, I think there was just a lot of good energy around the program coming out of camp. And not that that is some magic pill that makes things perfect all of a sudden, but I think that is in a lot of ways going to be indicative of um, how people are feeling about what's going on on the field. And uh, obviously with the new offensive coordinator, um, getting Cade back there and his first uh, full season to start, um, there's been a lot of reason for optimism, a lot of positive press coming out. Um, so I, I, I don't know how you reconcile with what we all had hoped we would see versus what we did see. I think definitely we have to acknowledge that the turnovers and special teams miscues played a significant factor in the outcome. Um, one of the thing, I mean, there's a lot of things that coach Sweeney talks about, but as far as specific things within the game, having a poor special teams performance and also having two turnovers in the red zone would be major, major problems as far as those sorts of goals within the game. And that shows, I mean, if you think about, um, the difference in the score, if a couple things went differently here or there, I mean, it's very easy to play that game, but I think ultimately why it was so shocking to watch was just the feeling that Clemson was not the most physical team on the field, which um, that is hard to, to understand. I don't know um, whether you give a bunch of credit to Elko and Duke and the program that they built, but that to me is as a player in the way I see it is if, if the other team looks like they're attacking you and it's not the other way around, that is a huge cause for concern. And I would have to imagine that's going to be addressed today, uh, this afternoon. And when you talk about the physical element, are you referring to across the board? Are you referring to some assorted different positions? Can you maybe elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, there's not any one position, or, or certainly I would never point to one player and say this guy or this, they, they weren't physical enough. But I just think that if you watch the game, whether you're a casual viewer or somebody who's watching specific positions, it seemed to me like Duke was flying around and they were being uh, the aggressor. And when you think about receivers getting open, I mean, I don't even know. It's very hard to watch the game on TV and, and dissect the coaching and the play calls because it's just hard to watch all of it. So I don't, I can't even speak to what plays are being called, but if, if there were no explosive pass plays, I mean, I, I can't think of one, um, to some degree, it might be because they're not open. And uh, you have to be physical to get open. I know that uh, Duke's coach, I mean, he is a big time. He does not want to give up big explosive plays. And that's, that's the strategy he plays. But with that, uh, Clemson's still Clemson and, or so we thought. And so I think that the lack of explosiveness, the, the feeling, I mean, I, I know this feeling all too well where, it feels like there's no way for us to get a quick hitting score and we have to grind it out down the field in 12 play drives in order to score a touchdown. And you cannot live or die based off of that. You have to have those quick hitters, whether in, in the running game or the passing game. And 
so that was, I would say, concerning. And just, and then also from a tackling perspective defensively, I, I do, I do think there was probably quite a few missed tackles, which once again, I mean, there, there's, those things will be addressed. Um, but when you talk about the, the consequence of certain missed tackles, I mean, you could be talking about the difference between a sack versus a 15 yard gain or, um, you know, something getting all the way to a touchdown. So those small details really do add up, but I think at its root, it's a physicality thing. And I don't know if anybody has really stepped up, obviously will Shipley. I think everybody knows by now that guy plays the game with a fire and intensity and, I think everybody else is looking for some other guys to to match that and to to bring it out of you know the collective group. It's shocking to hear, and I'm guessing you heard this during the game. Tom Luganbill, he's not a hot take chucklehead. That you know, right. he's not your typical guy on Twitter or Paul Feinbaum or, or a, a, a large number of others who just say stuff to create a sensation. This guy studies the game. He knows these coaches. And when he said, guys, I'm stunned here. Um, there's really not much difference in the team speed between these two, between Clemson and Duke. And that on top of the physical part that you mentioned, that is just stunning to sort of uh, grapple with and and accept because that was le- at least as far as it goes for sixty minutes last night. It, it, that's all, all the above was accurate. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, you think about Clemson and over the past ten years, what our identity has been. I mean, I say this even as a a, a big ugly on the O line. Clemson has always been known for great skill players. And, uh, I know this, especially on the offensive side of the ball. It's not, we are not, uh, uh, some big 10 school. That's just rolling out a big old O line. And that's what we're known for. We are known for the guys on the edge quarterback running backs. We've had some great tight ends, you know, that really has been our hallmark. And that once again, talking about those explosive plays, I mean, if, if we don't have that, which we've always been able to count on that, that is surprising. And I don't know. You know, it's one thing to identify an issue. It's another thing to identify the cause of an issue. So what the cause of that is or the discrepancy in the speed, I have no idea. But um, I do think that it was pretty clear where in years past when Clemson played Duke, it's going to be a pretty sizable gap in talent and speed and and all these things. And now, as he said, I mean, it really wasn't all that different um they had some big boys on the d-line and and you have to give credit where credit's due and i think that definitely they were a formidable opponent probably uh more formidable than others gave them credit for but the bottom line is is it's you're not playing to an opponent and the opponent shouldn't be your chief focus and so that really for me i i think i would like to see them come out moving forward and make it very clear that uh, they're going to play to Clemson standard and not to an opponent. Um, because, uh, where you go from here, I, I don't know. It's not like the sky is falling. I mean, if you think back to 2014, Ohio state lost their opener to Virginia tech and, and that was the year they went on and won it all. So it's not like the sky is falling and the world is over, but I think it's just more so the, the nature of the game is what is most concerning, not necessarily the loss itself. As a former player, can you give some perspective on 
motivation entering a season? Because I think what we're both talking about is it was surprising that this team had all offseason to stew over how last season ended. There was so much reason to think this team was going to have the red ass, for lack of a better word. Um, but just thinking back to some some of the years during your time, people forget, you know, entering 2020, there was good reason for red ass because you lost to LSU in the national title game. Entering 2021, there was the good reason to have red ass during the offseason because you got pounded by Ohio State in, the, in, in New Orleans. Um, entering 2022, there was great reason for red ass because you, you lost, you know, three, three games and you started four and two and look like just a, or I'm sorry, four and three, uh, and just a shell of what you once were. And then this year, plenty of reason for red ass because of losing to South Carolina at home, getting pounded by Notre Dame and losing to Tennessee in the orange bowl. And yet it feels like the other team in the opening 60 minutes of the season had more, I don't want to say motivation, but just had a bigger edge. Am I, am I overstating that? Well, no, I think, I mean, look, if you, as you said, look back to the years, um, for example, my, uh, my freshman year, my first year was 2017. So this was the season directly following the national championship win with, um, Hunter Renfro's game winning catch, Deshaun Watson, that crew. And, and so, uh, you know, they had made it to the mountaintop, as Coach Winnie would say. And then that next year, there was a lot of soul searching, us kind of questioning whether or not we still belonged. But then at the end of that year, when we played Alabama in the bowl game, um, I, I, not that I had played in that game because I was redshirted, but I know that Coach Sweeney was disappointed with the lack of edge in that game. And, and with that, that next off season and the following season where we won it all and were undefeated, they made it abundantly clear that there's a, there's not a lot of things that we can control, but we will control the attitude that we play the game with. And that was not a, a point of negotiation that was uh, dictated. And that was going to be, you know, my way or the highway that was not going to change. And they will, would not relent on that. And I would say that team definitely had the edge. I mean, I, I would say those guys came out, but the, you would hope so because I mean, if something like that is drilled into you all off season, um, if you are truly a competitor, if you are a guy or a team that really loves to play the game, you would be salivating to go prove to people that you're not soft or that whatever happened last year was a fluke. And not that being motivated is once again going to make you win the game and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, for an opening game to come out and you, it's the first opportunity you get to hit another team and um, it's just something was off and it's, it is, it's after these past couple of years where it's not, you know, having that national championship um, goal every year is, is that's a hard goal to fulfill every year. But as we've gone and gotten further removed from say the 2019 season where we lost to LSU, it's almost seemed like that getting to that national title game is feeling more and more distant and add to that the amount of guys on the roster that were around when we were in those years is less and less and less. And so 
that is definitely a cause for concern because part of a huge factor in us being able to sustain our success during those years was because we had veterans on the team that had been there before. They knew what it was like. They knew the pressure and the, the stage. They were able to handle that. And so as you get further and further away and not as many guys have experience playing in bigger games or on big stages, they, they, you kind of fall back into that do we belong questioning. And once you lose that confidence, climbing back up to get there to prove it to yourself again is a different beast because you almost have to convince yourself and, and you only convince yourself by doing it. And it's almost a chicken or the egg scenario, but it's, um, yeah, I mean the edge, I don't know. I, I, I can't speak to the, the off season and the process and the summer workouts. I don't know. But I, I would say that if there was a measurement of who had the bigger edge, it was not the Tigers last night. Yeah, thinking back to 18 with what you referred to, Christian Wilkins, Cleveland Farrell, Austin Bryant, those were the key figureheads who just weren't going to let complacency no. uh, creep in. Can you give, for those of us on the outside, can you give a sense of what that looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like to have that type of 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 sort of dominant uh, leadership and adherence to the to that high standard. Yeah, well, I think those guys are, are such a great example because they everywhere they went, they were together, and it, it's still that way with those guys. Uh, even as they're all playing off at their different NFL teams, but they were all so unique, and I, I would always hesitate to compare any young guys to them because I think those guys are in a league of their own not just from a talent perspective, but because of how hard they worked. I mean, they worked and worked and worked. They took young guys under their wings. They were the best players, but they were the hardest workers too, and the best leaders. And they would not be denied. And because they were the best players, they could run their mouth all they wanted in practice because they would prove it to you. And that's why, obviously, there is a, a an opportunity to be a leader for every single person on the roster, but the most effective leaders are the ones who are able to back it up on the field and say, Hey, if you find y'all don't know what, what you're doing over here, but this is what it looks like. And I'm going to walk the talk every day. And th- that's just, it takes a special guy or more importantly, group of guys who will voluntarily hold themselves to that standard and hold their teammates to that standard. And that's really when you get into this conversation about leadership Leadership is tough and it's, it's hard when you're leading your peers because uh, I, I had this conversation many times in the 2021 season when I was uh, kind of the elder statesman of the offense and similarly things weren't super pretty early on. And, you know, there were some uncomfortable interactions and um, holding people accountable and, and disciplining people uh, because that's what a leader has to do. And it's not a popularity contest, but I think that concept is very hard for young people to grasp and to, to reconcile with because everybody wants to be liked. That's normal. That's understandable. But sooner or later, somebody, one of these, uh, veteran guys, whether offensively, defensively, both need to say, you know what? I don't, I'm not really concerned anymore with being everybody's best friend but I am concerned with holding people to the standard that I know that we're supposed to be held to. And that, that's, that comes from within the coaches can't do that. They can't force anybody. 
you know, you have to have somebody who voluntarily subjects himself to that standard and then is able to implement it. Um, but, th- but things like that don't happen overnight. And I think that they're desperately looking for some, some leaders defensively. I mean, th- the talent that we have on this defense is, uh, I mean, it's a very talented group at all levels. Um, and with that, I don't know that there's been any of those really, really outsta- outstanding and outspoken leaders like we saw on that 2018 team. One of the common themes last night from Dabo and from the players who were interviewed was none of this was none of this happened during camp. None of this happened during the preseason in terms of the 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 ball protection issues, the lapses in situational awareness on both sides of the ball. What do you make of that when a team can go through all of camp and as according to Dabo only have one bad practice and then when the lights come on, it's just a different story in terms of how they're reacting to real game, real life elements in front of lots of people. Yeah, I think, I mean, again, going to that um, experience discussion where um, there's guys on the team that are well experienced. You'd look at a guy like uh, Will Putnam, Walker Parks, Tyler Davis. Um, these are guys that have played a lot of football. And part of that, what comes with that experience is the sort of poise and calmness that you need to have when you're playing because if you get too riled or if you get too shaken or worried with how things are going it's very easy to lose your confidence and to start making those mistakes because it's almost like at that point you're trying to play catch up or you're trying to do too much and a veteran player knows that if you just keep chipping away and and don't try to get outside of yourself you, you can still kind of claw back into the game and so i mean there was a couple miscues early on with some some high throws um it it, it's uh, like you said the ball handling issues you know those are simple simple mistakes but i mean how costly right and there's just some plays that that frankly they just made good plays i mean i would have to look back at the the fumble that was returned uh almost for a touchdown but i think the guy's helmet just hit the ball um and that's just that's just a great football play. I mean, that's that, it's hard to hold on to a ball when a guy's helmet is, is hit, hitting the ball directly. Um, so, yes, there are some circumstantial things, but um, like the field goals, I mean, that to me, two missed field goals is, is inexcusable. You have to come away with points because, I mean, those two field goals go in, then it's tie game. And then at the end there, they really blew the top off. But that's a whole different game scenario just with the field goals and not to mention the turnovers. So the game is not practice. And that's, that's why you play the games. The games aren't played on paper. And, and there, I think that there are just situational things that come with playing the game and being out there, whether you're a guy who's starting for the first time or getting his first action as a freshman, that it can be, uh, I guess, intimidating stage, but that's when you have to perform. That's what part of being a competitor is all about. So, um, they've got some soul searching to do. And, and I think that it's finding some way to, to get those guys in a rhythm, to get Cade slowed down, um, and just calm and not so nervous. I think that it was kind of like the, some hesitation here and there, almost playing not to make a mistake. And 
if you're playing not to, to not to make a mistake, uh, oftentimes it seems like you end up making mistakes anyways. And so, uh, really you just have to play free, play to win. When the mistakes come, you adjust. But if you, if you are super tightly wound going out there, it's hard to kind of, um, get into the flow of the game and, and start letting the offense, uh, make some plays. So I don't know. I, it's, uh, it's hard to put a finger on for me. I mean, um, I think always early on in the season, you're going to see some sloppier football. I mean, that's just across the board for all these college teams, but playing sloppy and making super detrimental mistakes are two different things. And, um, when you look at the mistakes and how punishing they were, it just goes to show that the margin for error is that small and you know, they practice too, and they've got good players too. So I think, um, it's winning is hard and we've won a lot around here over the past 10 years or whatever it's been. Um, but the bottom line is it is hard to win. And those teams practice too. They've got 85 scholarship guys too. And so you can't just go through the motions and expect to win. If you put in the work, then you can expect to win. But, uh, there's something to be said about having respect for the opponent and um, playing to that standard every time and, and not to the opponent once again, which is easier said than done. But these young guys, I mean, as they get more and more game experience, I think the game will slow down for them. And, uh, you know, hopefully that these mistakes moving forward aren't, aren't so costly. The public accounting of last night from Dabo and, the, and Kate Klubnick was, you know, Never seen a weirder game in my life. Um, just the flukiest game ever. Just all these things went wrong. Um, you know, statistically, before last night, Clemson was 108-0 and all time when it rushed for 200 and passed for 200. But I would hope that the public accounting and explaining of that and sort of the, the, the t- that takeaway of, gosh, just a weird game and just a big fluke, I would hope that that's not the messaging behind the scenes because I'm sorry, you get what you, you – you, they earned that. I mean, they – Duke Duke had some snake bite moments too. Like, so the snake bites both ways, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and the example of the goal line where the, 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 the helmet just – you know, just so happened to hit the ball. Yes, a bit of a fluky thing, but what allowed that to happen? What allowed his helmet to be there <laughs> on the ball? It was your left tackle getting totally submarine right at the snap to the point where the helmet is on the ball like half of a second after the ball is snapped. And that's the reason that happened. And it wasn't just dumb luck, right? You see where I'm going? Right. Yeah. Well, you're exactly right. There, it, it's it's very easy to say, oh, well, you know, these crazy things happen, but there is always a reason. And um, I would have to imagine, I could tell you almost with certainty that the internal accounting is going to be uh, maybe not so lenient. <laughs> um, now, you have to give Coach Sweeney and, and Cade kind of the benefit of the doubt there. You know, they're not trying to. Um, you know, prematurely analyze things. Obviously they want the opportunity to look at the tape and really dissect, you know, certain things like that. You know, if you're just watching the game, you know, a lot of people aren't watching the O-line specifically. So that's a great example though, because, um, those things, I mean, 
you have to know there's just certain at every position, there are certain cardinal sins, as I would say. So if you're the left tackle and you know, the ball is coming to you, number one, first and foremost, cannot get beat inside and you cannot give up penetration. So that, and then, but if you do those things, then things like that can happen. So I think that you can chalk it up to much more than just it was a crazy game. I mean, there there's there are things that are unlucky, as you said, but it goes both ways. And and you know, throughout the years, we've also benefited from some things that maybe we were lucky on uh, some missed field goals and things like that. So um, you never want to just say, oh, it's kind of the luck of draw, but that's just speak. And, you know, they're going to say internally probably a lot different than they'll speak outwardly. But um, I think too, it's, they are probably going to try to be protecting Cade because they don't want to crush his confidence. And he, he's fallible, you know, he's a young quarterback. He's got great talent, but he's, he's not just the second coming of Christ. I always tell people, it's very hard to appreciate what you have in the moment, but a guy like Trevor Lawrence is just not the norm. (laughs) And we've been spoiled with a guy like Trevor or Deshaun, who these were just prolific quarterbacks, big time playmakers. They were special when the ball was in their hands and not that Cade does not have that opportunity. I think he's got great potential, but it shows you that, uh, you know, you think to last year and everybody thought that, you know, Sweeney was holding out to, uh, to be overly loyal to DJ and, and Cade should have gone in uh, week five. And, but it's not always such a, an easy band-aid fix. And there's, there's development that goes along with that. And there's guys understanding how to play within the system and guys getting comfortable with one another, whether that's receivers or offensive linemen getting comfortable with each other and how they communicate. But the bottom line is there is accountability and they will be held accountable for what actually happened. And the eye in the sky does not lie. So they all probably today are in for an uncomfortable couple of hours. They dissect what happened, but they've got a game on Saturday. So as much as it's, it's frustrating and it stings, they have no choice, but to, to move forward. And the decision that comes with that is moving forward. Are we going to put our foot in the ground, draw a line in the sand and say, this is unacceptable. And this is when you need those guys who are the leaders to hold themselves and their teammates accountable to a level that is equal to, or even greater than where the coaches are at. Because if, if the leadership is only coming from the coaches over time, guys will just start to resent it. But if they are, you know, if they've got great leaders, guys who are really good locker room guys, you know, then you can get guys who are buying in and believing, but that first comes with acknowledging where things are at, where we made our mistakes. And then, taking action to improve upon that, which doesn't happen in three or four days. And, but I mean, I'll tell you this much, they know that Florida state is coming. And if they go roll out against Florida state, like they, they did against Duke, it's going to be a long night. And I think that they know that. Yeah. And, and speaking of that matchup in a few weeks, that's one of the reasons that I think it's just kind of a cop out to, you know, to say up oh, everything, bad that could have happened last night did happen there were some things there were some more bad things that could have happened that did not happen in terms of you had the three turnovers you could have easily had three 
more interceptions because the on the first drive of the game, you throw it right to the safety. He drops it. Later in the game, uh, I guess later in the first quarter, you throw deep right into double coverage. That could have been intercepted. Then I guess it was uh, third, fourth quarter. Um, you throw it right into the hands of a safety who it would have been a good, you know, he had had to jump to to grab it, but it still could have been picked. So as you're shifting, well, as we shift the focus to Florida State, the team can't really shift that focus right now because they have two more games. Right. But Florida State has the athletes to make those plays. To make those plays, and, right. And, and to make it a five or six turnover game that is going to mean a 30 or 40 point loss probably. So that's the dangerous part, I think, of just chalking it up to just a total uh, fluke event where 100% of the th- bad things that could have happened did happen. I, I actually don't think it was 100%. I think it was probably about 80%. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there's definitely, I think there were some other uh, balls put in jeopardy. I don't, I don't think that's remotely in question. And But people forget because the, the outcome wasn't as bad. And so that, to me, I think these young quarterbacks, like a guy like Cade, I mean, there is no question that he is talented and he was highly recruited for a reason. He's, you know, he's got that signal caller sort of field general uh, attitude. He wants to be a leader and that's most important. But with that, there is a big adjustment coming from the high school football to college. And I, I believe that a lot of young quarterbacks struggle with trying to, to be the superhero all the time. And part of that sort of game management, I mean, I think Trevor, even during his time, his self-criticism was, was similar where maybe not in his freshman year, was he getting too aggressive, but early on in the, his sophomore year, he threw a fair amount of picks early on because he was just trying to, to, to do too much. You don't have to do more than your job, just do your job. And that goes for everybody. That is not just the quarterback. That's the offensive line, the receivers, you know, or, or in defense, you know, these guys in the secondary, if they get too aggressive and they're biting on play actions or, you know, they're not filling their gap because they're trying to go play superhero and make a play in somebody else's gap. That's where you start to see people get exposed. And, um, as far as the, the interceptions, I think, you know, that defensive coordinator or head coach, you know, he does not give up big plays. And so, you can't force the ball downfield when they're, they're sitting on it. I mean, they do not want to give it up, but what you can do is find creative ways to pick holes in it. And whether that's over the middle um, or, you know, whether shallow or deeper, I think that that's where it seems like most of the time when we're pushing the ball downfield, it's along the sidelines. And I, at one point, I remember in that 2018 season, we used to torch people across the middle. I mean, we would, <laughs> and on, on play action, I mean, whether it was Justin Ross or T. Higgins, I mean, those guys would just slice and dice them, and they would find the hole. And so I don't know what the the reason is for that. I don't know if it's a quarterback and receiver issue. I don't ever claim to be an expert about the guys out there running the routes. But I do know that the ball was put in jeopardy an awful lot. And those are just mistakes that I think are a symptom of him being young and, 
and just not comfortable in the pocket. And um, he'll learn as uh, you know, the ability to throw the ball away is, is a great thing. And knowing when and how to use that tool to your advantage is just part of managing the game. So you got to give the kid, I mean, you, you, you have to cut them some slack. I know it's hard for people to be patient with guys. And especially as we're, uh, you, you hear all these great things and everybody's singing each other's praises throughout the spring and summer. And so when things come out and they're not as shiny as we all thought, it's easy to get frustrated, but the kid is young. I mean, he, he's got, uh, his whole career ahead of him to continue to improve, but know that something that he's going to have to improve upon is, is that decision-making process, pushing the ball down the field and, and understanding where the safeties are going and when, and, and that's, um, you know, that there's a lot of learning that goes along with that, um, and skill as far as manipulating them, even which that comes. I kind of feel like he has what it takes to be a really, really good quarterback, but it just feels like it's going to take longer than maybe a lot of people were expecting. You agree with that? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to necessarily say that or as, as you know, insofar as giving off the impression that I've given up on the kid already. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but my, my point was yeah. actually the opposite of giving up. It's more just, it might, he just has more to work on. It might be a longer term process, I think, than maybe than we're used to around here, or I guess became well, used to when, when, when the two, uh, two greatest quarterbacks in, in school history came sort of back to back. Yes, I think that's that's definitely fair. I mean, look, if you if you look at a lot of these positions, offensive line um, in particular, but there's a lot of positions where mo- guys coming in and playing as true freshmen is is highly uncommon. And oftentimes teams don't want to rely on the true freshman coming in to be the, the, the guy. And the reason that is, is because as much as somebody might be talented or has the intangibles, understanding the details of the game and and the scheme takes takes time that is more normal than the alternative which as you said we've been very spoiled with young quarterbacks who come in with a very high level of maturity who have a very good understanding of the game but you're talking about the guy who was the number one overall pick in the nfl draft and another one who was also a first round pick so that does not just they, those guys don't just come from the sky. I mean, even Alabama. If you look at some of the great Alabama teams in uh, the twenty tens and or or even prior to that, they had several quarterbacks that came through that program that were not Tua or Jalen Hurts, and they they were still a great program. They still won a lot of games, but it was because of how great their defense was. So. Just because we're Clemson doesn't mean we're entitled to roll in some new five-star freshman kid that's going to be uh, Joe Montana. And I think that we've all kind of become accustomed to this very, very cushy um, talent level. And I don't think that it's realistic to expect that. Over time, yes, you always want the guy who's at the helm to be uh, a high-level guy who has NFL prospects and things like that. But it does not happen overnight in most cases. And um, that's something that people just have to really kind of adjust their expectations and be realistic and, and give the kids some grace too. like, hey, he he put the ball in jeopardy. You know, he was the one who threw the ball. So he knows that it was put in jeopardy. And I'm sure he's hard on himself about stuff like that. And and 
those things just come with, with that improvement process and development. And Clemson is a developmental program. We've developed guys at every other position who didn't play until their, their fourth or fifth year. Think about a guy like Cornell Powell or some of these guys at these other positions. And it's easy to, to be patient when guys are developing, when the guys who are currently playing are, you know, they're taking care of business, but you always have to give people the opportunity to, to grow into who they are as a player. And, and it might happen in the first year, might happen in the second, but it could happen in the third or fourth year for a lot of guys. And quarterback is no exception. What did you think of the offensive line play last night? You know, I thought that there were some bright spots. I think um, I will be interested to see moving forward if they mess around with lineups at all. Um, I don't know if I I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, So I'm not suggesting anything. I don't nobody has given me any indication that they would. But as you said, I do think that there were a couple instances of mistakes that just can't happen. Um, and, and that's very easy for me now being the armchair quarterback to look at. I remember being in that position. And there's some things that meet the eye, especially with offensive line play, that really aren't as they seem just because of the, the protection or um, maybe a lack of communication from somebody. So there's a lot of reasons why things might break down along the O-line. But I really think now it kind of comes to a guy like Will Putnam to sit there and, and tell those guys, like, you know, if we're going to move forward with this offense, it has to run through the offensive line. And that's that's a, a point of pride. That's something that they should readily accept and and take on and put that on their shoulders saying, we can't control anything else. But if we can get things taken care of up front, that gives all these other guys a chance. And I, I know, obviously, I know Will Putnam very well, Walker Parks. Uh, I know those guys, Marcus Tate, you know, they've got talent. I think that this this O-line has a lot of talent. They've even got some depth that has talent, but talent only gets you so far. And I think finding an identity for those guys is is key here. And, I mean, whether that's maybe if you're – pushing the boundaries on, on uh, finishing guys through the whistle. I mean, I would, I would love to see that. I, I'm sure, you know, they don't want to get in the habit of it, but if those guys were, were flirting with some personal fouls here and there, I think the coaches would probably like it because it shows that they've got an attitude and an edge and they want to kick some ass. I mean, bottom line. And that to me, I, I always, as a player tried to play hard and play it the right way. And so I'm definitely partial to that. But I think any offensive line should have a reputation and an attitude of being physical and, and punishing. And that's something that they have to decide within. But um, I think really it's upon them to, to make the decision first and say, while everybody else gets figured out, if Cade needs more time to develop and get better, these receivers need to figure out a way to, to beat man coverage let's give them time, but we know that we've got experienced guys up front. We know we've got a couple great backs and let's control. We can control and hold it down in the middle. And, um, you know, all that does is give those guys more opportunity to make some plays. The thing is I did see some glimpses of that physical dominance at times last night, particularly on some of those inside runs. Did you see the same thing? Yep. Yes, absolutely. Like I said, there were definitely some bright spots and I think, uh, you know, a guy like Walker Parks, uh, there was one play I saw where he took a dude's head off. So, I mean, it's in there. It, it's uh, 
it, I know Blake Miller. I mean, I've watched that kid and, and practiced several times. And last year, I mean, that kid has a, he's got that attitude in there too. And I think it takes those, a, a Will Putnam to say, to make it a non-negotiable that this will be our brand of football. Uh, I mean, their coach, Thomas Austin, when he played, that was his brand of football. And we've got great athletes. It's got great talent, but can we consistently impose our will on this defense and run the ball? We did have some great, I mean, look, we rushed for over 200 yards that, that remains. So that's, there's some positives there. I don't know how many sacks did we give up one or two sacks? Two. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's not that you ever want to give up sacks, but two isn't nine. And, uh, so there, there's some good stuff there. I think, um, getting that left tackle position sorted out seems to me to be the big, the big thing moving forward. Upstate foodies want to take a moment to talk to you about our favorite taco spot, Willie Taco. Five locations across the upstate. This award-winning team has been serving up fresh taco fusion for a solid decade now. The chefs at Willie Taco utilize the freshest, most creative, and sometimes unexpected ingredients in their kitchens. Come see why Southern Living, Garden and Gun, and Food and Wine Magazine are raving about Willie Taco and their signature offerings, such as their Southern Tide, Crispy Avocado, Nashville Hot Chicken Tacos, literally flavors you will not find anywhere else, folks. And don't forget about the cocktails, super fresh margaritas, ice cold cerveza, and over 80 tequilas served up daily from behind the bar. So don't wait, folks. Your Willy Taco Familia is ready to serve you up their twist on funky fresh fusion. It's the Willy Way. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Its office is located beside the Walmart Neighborhood Market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm, Smith & Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced, professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-3507. What did you see out of Lee and Sadler? I already mentioned the the, the submarine that Lee gave up. What 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 otherwise um, struck you about uh, those two guys? You know, I think Tristan Lee is, is an interesting case, and, and Tristan is, first and foremost, he is a really good kid. And so um, he's a guy who came in, was very highly recruited, but came in after COVID, had gained uh, a good amount of weight. And so it's taken him. He's another guy who came in as a five-star all-world, but it has taken him three years to get to this point. And he's still got some development to go. That, but I will tell you this thing about Tristan Lee is that he cares a lot and he's very self-critical. And so I think for him, he, uh, what I want to see from him is to just to see him play with confidence. And I, and when you, when you've got a guy who's, who's really playing with confidence, I think it's very evident when you watch him because they're not afraid to be aggressive. They're not afraid to, to make mistakes even. Um, but also with a guy like Tristan, he's very tall. And so in those goal line settings, it's going to be harder for a guy like that to, to kind of readjust his, his technique to combat some of those submariners on the goal line. I mean, the goal line as an offensive lineman is, is not 
not a super fun place to be, but, um, he's, he's a work in progress. I think that he's got a lot of potential. He always has, he's, he's an athletic guy. Um, but him kind of getting better about bending and, and getting movement at the point of attack is something to work on. But Colin Sadler, I think is a guy that I, I really look to and want to see him take that next step. I think that that's a very important piece here is that Colin who, look, he's a, he's a young guy. He's a big kid. He's got talent. If he can put it all together or these leaders on that line, if they can kind of force him to put it all together and, and give him that guidance, he's got a lot of potential. I mean, that's a guy who can absolutely play in the NFL if he puts it together. And so knowing that we have those pieces to me is very encouraging, but now it's like, okay, what are we going to do with this? Potential gets you so far, but um, you know, I think if they can figure that out, I don't know um, if they've talked about making any changes to the lineup. Like I said, uh, obviously Marcus Tate is a guy who can play tackle as well. So I'm sure that's something that they could evaluate if, if necessary, but um, they've got pieces in there. I think um, these guys just, they, they need to make that decision, but those guys are there. I think we definitely have the most collective size as an offensive line that we've had in some time. And, you know, that's something that they were harping about and recruiting and uh, getting bigger guys. So we've got the bigger guys now, but now, now what, you know, it's, it's, you can't use that as an excuse anymore. They can't, you know, I think a lot of people, it was very convenient for people to blame coach Caldwell and um, uh, who I am fiercely loyal to, but okay, well, coach Caldwell is retired now. So uh, now what is it? What, what's the reason now? So ultimately it's a personal decision from each guy in that room to take the onus and say, Hey, there were some bright spots, you know, offensive linemen don't carry the football, but to your point earlier, the offensive line surely impacted that fumble. So there's an ownership that has to take place, but really that decision and that attitude that I would hope my, my hope is over these next couple games that are uh, against inferior opponents, let's just call it how it is that they make it abundantly clear what their attitude is going to be for the rest of the season, because it's games like those that I think are very indicative of the best teams because they play to the standard and not the opponent. And I would have to imagine they will be pretty frustrated coming into Saturday. After I spent a lot of time dismissing the what if game, I still, you still can't get away from the idea that if they punch it in there with Mafa, then we're having a different, a largely different conversation because I think Clemson probably wins by 13, somewhere around there. The defense continues to play well. The offensive line continues to take over. And so then the story is, okay, uh, the offense and the running game uh, propped up, sort of settled down Cade Klubnick, you know, and it just feels like a whole different, not, not a totally different, well, yeah, totally different storyline than what we're talking about right now. Yeah, I, I mean, every game is going to have those sorts of inflection points. And it almost there's there's a very clear feeling, I think, as players and fans, when that inflection point kind of turns maybe in the, a different direction that we had expected or hoped. And once that happens, the momentum and confidence that changes is very hard to get back. And it's very deflating when you know, as an offense, you have these long drives, you get into the red zone and come away with no points 
I mean, it's demoralizing, whether that's via a fumble or a missed field goal. Any time that you kind of chip away, chip away, chip away, and put yourself in a position to score and you do not, that really sucks the air out of the energy. And that is – it is. It would have been a hugely different outcome. I mean, I I think even even as much as the – final score was not pretty and there at the end duke really put an exclamation point on things i i think that by that point they were just worn down the defense and they were tired or whatever but if if we don't get to that point or maybe if the offense is able to sustain some drives and and put some stuff together i do think we're looking at a much different outcome but as Coach Sweeney says often, sometimes you, you have to touch the stove to know <laughs> that it's hot. And uh, it was very hot last night. <laughs> um, yeah, third-degree burns from, from the, yep. uh, the offense. Um, are there any notable differences uh, with the offensive line responsibilities and sort of schematics uh, under Garrett Riley than before that, that you notice or have picked up on? Um, so I cannot speak to any specifics that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, I say, if anything, uh, one of the important parts, I mean, a chiefly important part of offensive line play is communication, but, uh, furthermore, it's the communication with the tight ends because tight ends are oftentimes involved in the blocking scheme in some fashion, whether in the run game or passing game. And so I know that with this offense, they have, at least shown in practice. And I would imagine we'll continue to try to utilize these tight ends in different ways that we might not have been doing in recent years, whether in a split position or um, uh, just different alignments. And I don't know, I couldn't specifically say in an instance here or there, but I think for them having the communication locked down that, really begins with these tackles they're next to the tight ends but it has to get passed all the way down and so when you have these young guys at tackle both are are i guess blake miller has a lot of experience but he's still a true sophomore and, and tristan is getting uh his first crack at things i would have to imagine that though the communication coming from the, the edges could probably be better and quicker um because the right guard and the center and the left guard they're all dependent upon the tackle making a call initially so if that is coming at a delayed uh rate or if when they are trying to push the tempo like down there at the the goal line and um somebody's trying to communicate something that's also with the quarterback i think that the quarterback has to know when to start the cadence of a play and that has to come after the offensive line has had the opportunity to communicate. But if he's rushing things and does not give them the opportunity to make those calls, then you'll see guys running wide open because somebody's on one page, another guy's on another. They think each other is doing different things. And that's when it gets very ugly. So as far as specific um, responsibilities, I can't think of any that are very different, but I do think that, it is the communication part of things is definitely one of the toughest things for young O-linemen to really get a hold of because you have to be confident when you make these calls. You can't, uh, I think I should go or I think I should make the call, but I'm not sure. So I might just not make it or maybe I decide to make it at the last minute and then the quarterback snaps the ball. So that is a very small thing. That's not even a physical thing. It's not even talent or anything like that. It's simply a mental error. 
that can have a very, very bad outcome for a play just because guys are not on the same page. So I think collectively, whether or not there's more or less responsibility of that communication, they need to take the onus and be really great about communication. And Putnam being there at the center is is great because he's such an experienced guy and he can initially set guys on the correct course. But when there's any adjustments that need to be made, you know, he needs the center can only see so much. And especially when there's adjustments, whether a linebacker blitzing off of the edge or um, twists that are happening, the communication is really reliant on the tackles and their processing of the information. Last night made Clemson one of the stories this season and not for the good reasons. What do you think ends up happening? How does this turn out? And I hate, Personally, I hate having to make predictions because this is the most unpredictable sport. It's just impossible <laughs> to predict any of it week to week, so it's almost stupid to even have a prediction. So if you don't really want to, that's totally fine, but I'm just curious, how do you think this turns out like, uh, at, know, at the end? I, that, I, predictions are hard because, um, A, I never want to be in the business of being overly critical of – guys who are former teammates or, you know, guys that were in part of the same program as, as the one I was fortunate enough to be a part of. So I don't like to say, Oh, there, there's seasons over with. I am not a doom and gloom guy. I readily uh, understand that they're college guys. They're imperfect and it's damn hard to win. So I don't ever like to look at it from that. Oh, now their season's over. Or, you know, like I mentioned that Ohio state scenario, uh, almost 10 years ago, that's a very uncommon outcome. And I would say, I think the verdict is still out until we roll the ball out against Florida state. I think if they come out and have made whatever adjustments are necessary, whether from an attitude perspective or a scheme perspective, I don't even care about the win or loss against Florida state at this point. I want to see guys who come out with an attitude and that to me, after that game, I think that it will be evident what this season is going to be because right now, look, they're on their heels, man. They're, they're rolling into the facility today. I think they're all questioning everything about the preparation that they've done for the the last nine months. You know, are we just, fraudsters just acting like we're we deserve to be here and that we're these Clemson teams of the past or or were were those headwinds last night just too much to overcome and is that a lesson to be learned about game management and the plan to win but either way when you look at the talent on this roster there is no reason why they cannot go out against Florida State and win the game I mean you know a couple days ago we were number nine in the country and I think it's very easy for people to have a bad outcome and think the worst. Um, but the ACC I think is probably the strongest that it has been in a couple years. And so if they are really to, to patch this thing together and make a run for the ACC championship and, uh, the playoff, if, if that's so in the cards, then they're going to have to buckle it up and, and play some big boy football. And it's not, uh, it is not something where you can just go in and expect to win. You need to do the things that are necessary to win on a day-to-day basis on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday to allow yourself to win on Saturday. So that's what I will say is 
I'm not going to make a call good or bad, but I will be dialed in when they play Florida state, because I want to see how they respond. I want to see really, I want to see over these next couple of weeks too. I mean, I, I know that when in 2018, we came out and played Georgia Southern in the third game. And we were, we came out flat and, that was kind of the point where coach Sweeney made it very clear that if you're not going to come in a week in and week out with the same standard, with the same focus, with the same intensity, you will not be great if you can't do that, especially when it's a, a quote unquote inferior opponent. And so I would be licking my chops if I'm one of these guys, because now I would surely hope that they have an edge. If they do, if they didn't have an edge before they better have one now or else we got really big problems because I would venture to guess that this week is not going to be super comfortable around the Clemson football facility. So your question is basically, does this program have that dog in it? it I think that's a great way to put it because uh, I know that I know this, I know we have had some players come through this program that were absolute dogs. I mean, you think of the, some of the guys that, uh, I was fortunate enough to play with a lot of these guys that are in the NFL right now. I mean, you are talking about world-class football players that were dogs and to get the opportunity to strap it up and go put your paws on somebody and dominate them is all that they were focused on. And it's not about making the money or the, the Instagram pictures. It was about just absolutely imposing your will. And, um, that is something that I think we must get back to if we really want to be that the Clemson team that, that we're all used to over these past five years. And that I think that comes from within. I want a Barrett Carter, Jeremiah Trotter, a Tyler Davis, Ruka Roro. I want these guys to stand up and say, I know what it looks like. I know who came before us. I know the standard that they held themselves to and the attitude that they played the game with. I know how intense and physical those practices were every week, every week. And shame us if we don't hold ourselves to that standard because they've got a whole lot of creature comforts. There's no excuse. They've got everything they could want and more, but it's going to take a group of those leaders who've been there a long time, who've played a lot of football, who know what it looks like to help these young guys understand that you do not just get to come to Clemson and put on the uniform and become a champion. That is not how it works. And if you think it was a long time until we won a national championship again from the first one in the school history. And so is it going to be 34 more years or are we going to capitalize on the position of this program in college football and make sure that we keep that going. But as coach Sweeney would always say, uh, Bobby Bowden in Florida state, I think they had 15, 10 win seasons in a row, if I remember correctly, but there was, why was there not 16? There was, there was that team that was no longer a part of that club. And why is that? And success is hard to sustain. success is even harder and so we know these things and are you actively guarding against it? So I want, yes, I want the identity of this program to be what it has been. And uh, I mean, if you think back to coach Sweeney's introductory press conference, 
a toughness that is unmatched. Can we say that about the program as it currently is? And and if if they claim that we can, then I would love to see it. Anything else you want to get off your chest? Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, no, I mean, look, I think once again, I I'm always it's very important for me to always give these guys the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's not like these guys came out in the springtime and then the summertime and and didn't care or uh, camp was just some walk through breeze and all the coaches are lying to us. I, it's people have very outsized reactions, typically positive and negative. And so, you know, nobody is perfect. These guys do their job on a stage in front of uh, millions of people who are watching and criticizing them, but also that comes with the territory. And so it's not the end of the world, but these guys are going to have a little come to Jesus week and I think that moving forward, they've got a couple games to, to find it, find the attitude, and then come September 23rd, they better be in, in, in game day shape because uh, that team coming up from Tallahassee is no slouch. Matt Bockhorst, man, thank you for joining on the spur of the moment uh, and helping just rip the Band-Aid off. <laughs> yeah. I think there's only one, one way to do it. Yes. So no, I enjoyed the conversation. I think, uh, lots of, of curiosity now, uh, on my behalf with how these guys respond. Um, but they do, they've got great leaders. I mean, there's, there's a lot of positives that remain. So, um, exciting couple of weeks here to see, uh, how they respond to the adversity and, and, uh, what the identity of this team is going to be. Okay. No sugarcoating there in that hour long conversation. I think it would probably be an insult to your intelligence if there were a lot of sugarcoating of last night. All is not lost, though. We shall see. This is going to be a fascinating time in Clemson football history as this coaching staff, players, program show what they're made of. Appreciate the support of our sponsors for continuing to help make this happen. And thanks most of all to every one of you for hitting that play button. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.